and welcome back to Eric Likes Animals. I'm Eric Mahan. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you guys all had a good Halloween, and I hope that the last two episodes of our spooky editions helped get you into the mood. If this is your first time listening, welcome to the podcast where we talk about a special featured species, and also we talk about some fun environmental news. So if this is your first time, welcome, and if you're returning, welcome back. So why don't we get started with some environmental news. A five-month-old bird just made their record books. A young bar-tailed goodwit was just recorded on having the longest non-stop flight ever. The total distance was 8,435 miles, and it took about 11 days to complete, flying from Alaska to Tasmania. Now, you may be thinking to Google Maps this distance, and in a straight shot, the mileage doesn't really add up. And that's because, thanks to GPS tracking on this young bird, They were able to track this bird's journey, which first actually ended up heading towards Japan and then turning back to fly over some of the Alaskan islands, so it did not actually take a direct flight. Scientists are not positive if this bird was just lost or that's actually the path that these birds normally take since tracking them by GPS has only become a more recent thing. And at only five months old, this bird took a fairly long flight because during that flight, it also wasn't able to really land and take a breather. So it was kind of 11 days straight with no rest. However, this bird does differ from its flight pattern from other of its own kind that were tagged. For example, another bar-tailed goodwit used to hold the title of longest direct flight in 2020, where it flew 7,580 miles. And then that same bird beat its own record in 2021, going 8,100 miles. But I guess it got outpaced by the five-month-old newcomer, who was ranked first at 8,435 miles. And what this little guy is doing now, you may ask, after such a long flight? Well, he's earned a little break in Tasmania and is starting to fatten up since he lost probably about, scientists estimate, half of his body weight just on this long marathon flight. And at only five months old, that's pretty impressive. Now, when you think of farm animals, you may think of chickens, cows, or maybe even pigs, just to name a few, but you would probably never think of squid. Squid is a major staple, however, in Japan, and it is something scientists have been trying to grow in a farm setting for years. Unfortunately, due to very sensitive water changes, specific diets, and a bunch of other unknown features of this very elusive creature, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to do. So that means they have to fish all the squid out and well the peak of the squid fishing in japan in 1989 brought in about 733,594 tons of squid but however in 2018 due to the stocks being depleted from all this fishing they only brought in about 83,593 tons however they did have to fill that gap by starting to fish elsewhere besides just the waters off of japan namely in south america So, to keep up with public demand, scientists have really tried to figure out exactly how they could start breeding these squid in captivity since it doesn't seem like people's love for them in Japan was changing anytime soon. But recently, scientists have declared that they may have finally found an answer to the problem in a way to have reliable farm-raised squid. Under laboratory conditions, they were able to create a lineage of squid going through 10 generations. In a way, scientists describe it as being fairly cheap and efficient, which is great, right? 
I mean, that means that they can leave the wild squid alone and people can still get a full belly of squid over in Japan. Well, not everyone in Japan is cheering. Some of the animal activists over there do have some concerns. For you see, number one concern is the conditions that the squid would have to live in in these farming methods may not be as humane as they would like. And then secondly is the fact that squids are carnivores, which means what do they eat? Fish. And all that fish is just going to actually lead to more fishing. Yes, the wild squid populations may not be taking as big of a hit anymore, but that's really to make sure that there's actually squid on the table versus conservation, they say. As for conservationly speaking, this will increase the amount of fishing that's being done, not just to feed the people, but feeding the food of the people as well. And with larger stocks of squid than the wild population in some areas, this is going to require a lot of fish. And instead of one overfished animal, you could have multiple. Then finally, I sort of can't believe I'm saying this, but the United States Park Service would like to tell people to please stop licking toads. More specifically, the Colorado River toad. But really, don't go around licking any toad or really any wild animal, please. The Colorado River toad, however, has a toxin that's when it secretes, does sometimes give certain people hallucinations. So the Park Service keeps having people trying to go out and find these toads to lick. There are many problems, obviously, with this. Number one is that not every toad is the same. Nothing will happen sometimes. Sometimes you may get a hallucination, but other times licking these toads can lead to anxiety, nausea, seizures, and death. Since, you know, the whole point of toad's toxin is to stop animals from, well, wanting to eat it, not encouraging them to lick them. Another problem, of course, is it's not good for the toads. I mean, the animals might not die if you pick them up and lick them all the time, but people are purposely bringing them home as pets because they don't want to have to keep finding a toad to lick, as well as killing them to then sell their skins as a hallucinogenic, which isn't great since this toad species is considered endangered or threatened in a couple different states. So yeah, they really don't need you going out and killing them to lick their skin, especially since it can lead to death. But for all those who failed kindergarten, please don't lick random things. And for those of you that have more than one rain cell, thank you for not going out and randomly licking crap in the wild. And that is your environment news. So for today's species, I want to talk to you guys about a marine fish that will either do one of two things for you. Either A, put a really big smile on your face, or B, send shivers down your spine that such an animal exists. So don't be afraid to reach out and let me know which one it is for you, because today we are going to be talking about the sheep's head fish. Now, not to be confused with the California sheephead, we are talking about the sheephead fish that lives on the Atlantic side of North and South America. The sheephead fish is found in the coastal Atlantic waters, found as high north as Nova Scotia or as far south as Brazil. They are marine fish, but have been spotted in brackish waters and even sometimes in colder, fresh waters, sometimes during the winter months. They are, on average, can reach a length of 10 to 20 inches or about 25.4 to 50.8 centimeters, but have been noted for reaching up to 35.8 inches or 91 centimeters and normally can weigh about 21.2 pounds or 9.6 kilograms, and can live about 20 years. 
As for what they look like, they are either described as greenish yellow or a grayish color body. And they are quite bulky. They are definitely not a streamlined fish. And across their body, they have about five to seven black bands running vertically across. It has very sharp, spiny little fins and a face people claim looks like a sheep since that is the reason why it has its name, namely because of its kind of overextended jaw a little bit. But I kind of sort of don't see it. Uh, it really just kind of looks like short snout fish to me. I don't really see the sheep reference people are talking about. But hey, you know, <laughs> everyone has a different opinion. The main diet of the sheephead fish is hard-shelled animals such as mollusks and barnacles, hence why they have to have a decent jaw structure to them. They need to be able to break through those hard shells. The other device it has to help break through those shells is the exact reason I put this animal as our featured species. Because if you haven't already googled it, um, yeah, the other method it has to crack open those hard shells is teeth. Now you may be thinking, well, I know a number of fish have teeth, so what's so special about this animal? Because, yeah, you could have chose a ton of different fish with teeth. Well, the reason why I chose this fish with teeth is because those teeth in the sheephead fish are actually square and look extremely close to that of human teeth. So if you do end up Googling sheephead fish, that is not Photoshop. That's exactly what their teeth look like. It honestly looks like a grandmother dropped her dentures into the water and a fish accidentally plopped them into its mouth. They even have molars to help grind up their food just like we do. But these teeth, except for looks, are fairly different than ours. For example, I'm pretty sure if we ever tried to bite down on an oyster shell or a barnacle with our own teeth, we would shatter them into a million pieces. Not for the sheephead fish though, those teeth are built pretty indestructible to make sure they can really crush their prey down before they swallow them whole. But one roll of molars won't do it for the sheephead fish. That's because they have two rows of molars on their lower jaw and three rows of molars in their upper jaw. They really make sure that they can grind down those oyster shells before swallowing. But as young, they are too small to go after oysters and barnacles, so they don't have a need for these teeth. So unlike us when we were first born, obviously we don't really have teeth, but our baby teeth come in shortly afterwards and then eventually get replaced with adult teeth. These fish end up with no teeth until they reach maturity and then they just simply grow in their more permanent teeth. When the sheephead wants to breed, it will come into shore and depending on the area, since they are found fairly wide variety from north to south and a variety of possible spots to spawn, they normally will spawn in places like reefs or oyster bars or other such areas that would have plenty of food for their small fish fry when they are born. Also, depending on the location, it could be as early as January further south or if they are found more north, it's normally March to April when these fish would then come inshore to spawn and breed. They will gather in large groups of hundreds or even thousands where females will lay their eggs and males will fight over these areas for the best spots within the spawning group to make sure that they can fertilize the most eggs. Because since this reproduction happens outside the body, even though the egg mass all belongs to the same mother, multiple males can fertilize the same egg mass, which means the egg next door to you could be from the same mother, but 
have a very different father. And they have a lot of eggs to choose from, especially since most females can produce anywhere from 1,100 eggs to 250,000 eggs. And once fertilized, these eggs will normally hatch within 28 hours. And when first born, their diet normally consists of things small like plankton. As they grow, they will eat whatever they can get a hold of, but normally it is soft-bodied animals because until they reach about 2 inches, they do not actually have any of their teeth yet. When they get to 2 inches, however, they will start to grow their teeth and start switching over to harder-shelled things, for example, crabs, shrimp, and of course, oysters and barnacles. The sheephead fish will also reach sexual maturity in about 2 years' time when it will then be able to join in the spawning fun. You may think since they have teeth, that would be their number one weapon to use. Yes, they might happen to bite down if something were to attack them. But since the younger fish don't have teeth and their teeth are more for grinding and are not very sharp to defend themselves, they really don't use them too often. Luckily, however, they do have some sort of defense, which is their sharp dorsal fence, which can make a fish or other predator second guess eating one of these guys. But for the most part, they are just as part of the food chain as any other sort of fish is of that size. Of course, having more predators when they are smaller and younger, and then as they get bigger, having a little less and less. But obviously, sharks and larger fish always being the main predators. We as humans also apparently enjoy eating them as well. However, in the States, I know that many choose to simply not eat them simply for the fact that the human light teeth freak them out to a point where they don't want to eat it, which I kind of get. It's a little freaky, which great for them because unfortunately for any fish that is tasty and looks delicious to us, overfishing is normally always a problem there. They are listed as least concern on the IUCN red list and population stable, most likely because people are kind of freaked out about the whole teeth thing. But there are still a number of countries that fish them regularly, and also there is a number of other factors that could lead to population decline that can be concerning in the future. One example is all the human development that has happened along the shoreline destroying habitat that a lot of the sheephead would normally call home, or at least an area where they would normally forage for things like oysters. Because these beach homes and condos being put in destroy all the environment around it, like oyster bars, or sometimes referred to as oyster reefs, which is home to many, many animals, like the sheephead fish. And besides being food for the sheephead fish and, well, us, oysters are extremely important for the environment. They filter out a ton of water and help keep pollutants down. I mean, one adult oyster is said to filter out about 50 gallons of water a day. Plus, oyster bars is a major stopper of storm surge and flooding when hurricanes come in. They help block the ocean waters from being able to simply push their way right through. So getting rid of oyster bars are actually destroying not just filtration, but also protection for the environment. The second major issue is not so much overfishing, but the way people are fishing. Because you do have people that will use a rod and wheel and bring in one fish at a time. But others, especially if they are using it as a business, are using nets. And it's not so much the nets are the problem, but they're also casting those nets when the fish are the fattest and normally conjugated together, 
which is when they are trying to spawn and continue on the population of sheephead fish. And nothing can be more devastating for a healthy fish population than when people start purposefully targeting the spawning groups. For you're not just taking one fish, but hundreds at a time or even thousands. And the worst part about it is, too, you were also possibly devastating the next couple generations of fish by taking the whole spawning group. Because when a good thing keeps happening, the fishermen are going to keep fishing until they, well, can't catch any more fish. Thus leaving the spawning group left either fairly small or non-existent whatsoever. And sure, it might not completely devastate the population of the area because you have a couple generations that are still too young to spawn and weren't there. But if the fishermen keep doing this year after year after year, well, eventually the whole population in that area will eventually collapse. And then they won't have any fish to fish anymore. So what can we do about it? Well, in terms of the oyster bars and helping out the habitat, number one is, well, stopping development in sensitive areas or species-dense areas. So if it is an area that has an oyster bar or, as we sometimes refer to it, oyster reef, maybe don't build your condo there because you're going to devastate that area and many different species. The other main thing is, well, trying to bring back the oyster bars and the oyster reefs. And thankfully, scientists are already working on this. There is a couple different methods. One is, of course, people will make those artificial reefs and normally on the news or the Discovery Channel, they normally put them in the tropical areas and coral grows on them and all that sort of stuff. But people are taking those same kind of little oyster concrete hides and putting them into areas where the oyster larva is floating around in the water and hopefully will cling on to them. Also, actually, people will sink ships and other things. Now, normally it's done by scientists and they make sure there's no chemicals or toxins in there. So don't just go out and sink your own boat. But they do that to help promote reefs as well that then oysters can grow on. Another major thing that people are doing is they're actually taking the used oyster shells from oyster bars or wherever that people are jumping on, you know, used oyster shells after they eat them and crushing them up and using them or gravel or even broken up concrete and setting up kind of beds along the seafloor or marsh floor where there's really sandy areas that the oysters can't cling on to and creating areas that, well, now they can. And they will even take oyster larvae from either captive populations or even collecting some from a wild area that has a bunch and purposefully seeding that area so an oyster bar or oyster reef can naturally grow there, which is a great incentive for us humans because, as I kind of described earlier, they really can help us by filtering out water and saving our fancy beach houses from hurricanes. So, yeah, people are really wanting this in their area because it helps the environment and helps themselves. It is also the main reason why farming oysters are becoming so popular near these houses as well. Besides getting fresh oysters for themselves, they are developing all these good practices that the farmers can actually grow these oysters in a natural way 
So their oysters are getting bigger and healthier, which means that they're worth more. But also the farm itself doesn't take every single oyster, but also promotes kind of healthy ecosystem development then. So those oysters then are producing larvae, which is then seeding areas that really aren't part of the farm itself. So it's really this beautiful coexistence of nature and people working together and both are coming out on top, literally win-win scenarios. And that's exactly what we need to do to also help the other major issue, which is not so much the overfishing, but the complicated fishing, because it's not so much how much we're taking out, but when, where, and our methods that are the bigger problem. Because depending on which area, there are in the states where there are places where there are regulations, and that's great. You know, it has a when you can take a fish, the sex of the fish that you can take, so you can only take it from this time period, you can only take a male, and a lot of times there will also be size requirements, making sure that there is a chance for that single fish to breed at least once or twice before it is taken away and not losing the genetics, which is great and it definitely helps out the wild population from being taken away too much, but that doesn't happen in every area. And actually an even better fishing practice is the concept of setting up kind of fish sanctuaries. So this is one that scientists and conservationists actually have more recently been playing with and actually tested out in a certain select island nations or other smaller countries that normally have a lot of overfishing they know because of it being a main food source there as well as a major industry. So they really wanted to kind of not set themselves up for success and really pick difficult areas to test out this theory of if they set up the fish sanctuaries that the people there will actually be able to fish better than they ever did before, which is tough to get across. And a lot of people were skeptical and didn't really want to do it right away because where the scientists were saying, let's not fish here anymore, were exactly the only spots that these fishermen were catching anything anymore. Of course, the hot spots or the good spots where the spawning and all that is, is going to be really the only places left where the fish conjugate as they slowly die off. They're always going to be in the best area, especially if the population is so low. But the scientists said, whoa, if we let them actually do their thing and spawn and have this natural safe area, we are predicting that they will breed and rebound and soon there will be not enough space there and that this overpopulation of fish will start flooding into the fishing areas and you will get bigger, healthier fish stocks. And they were like, okay, we don't really trust you too much, but let's try it. And they did say that the first couple of years weren't great, which is to be expected, okay? Can't happen overnight. And the scientists created different things to help people get through that tougher time since they weren't able to catch all the fish that they needed to either bring money home or put dinner on the table. But both the scientists and the fishermen were surprised by how quickly then the fish rebounded. And soon the fishermen were getting bigger, healthier, and more fish than they ever had in their lifetime because it was generations of overfishing in this area. So them didn't even realize how good fishing truly could be for them. All they knew was a already depleted population. And soon, these fishermen actually started to become the biggest advocates 
for these fishing practices of creating no fish zones in purposeful spawning locations to give these guys a chance. And because of the successes these scientists have seen, they now know that if we did this worldwide, that we would be able to feed the world all of the fish needs that they want if we simply just didn't randomly go out and fish wherever the heck that we wanted. And this is important because this could bring back a number of fish species that are close to extinction, as well as making sure that fish species that are not even considered threatened yet, like our good friend the sheephead fish, is never even close to ever experiencing the fear of being the last of its kind. And that's our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the amazing toothy sheephead fish. As always, make sure that you check me out on Facebook and Twitter where I'll post additional information as well as sometimes make announcements about the podcast. And if you have any questions or comments, those are also two great places. And if you don't do the whole social media thing, you can always reach me at ericlikesanimals at gmail.com. All of those links will be provided in the show notes footers down below. And just because I really feel like this message needs to get across, please, for the love of God, don't go out and lick a toad. See you next time.